All right, very good. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Judges. Now, we're coming up on the end of Judges, and in fact, my plan for today is, God willing, let's finish Judges, and then let's just stop there. Just to track with where we've been so far, we've been moving, at least in some sense, chronologically. We started in Genesis. We went Genesis to Exodus to Joshua to Judges. And so if we're going to stick with that chronology, I think it makes sense to just simply go into 1st and 2nd Kings. The only problem with that is skipping over Ruth. So Ruth actually takes place about the time of David. So it'd be jumping forward, you know, 150, 200 years, something like that to do Ruth, and then we'd come back to the timeline. So we've got a little fork in the road. Uh, why don't you fill up my email uh, inbox, if you like, Pastor Rody at faithcapo.com. Let me know if you'd rather go uh, Ruth or if you'd rather immediately go into First and Second uh, Samuel. Those are, those are the two options. So, um, again, First and Second Samuel, probably a little more cohesion in terms of the timeline, but we can always um, jump into Ruth. It's a shorter book anyway. So, as I said, the plan for today is to finish Judges if we can. Now, we left off in Judges at chapter 20, but if you recall this long and sordid narrative starts all the way back in chapter 17 in one form or another. So you may as well flip back to chapter 17 and let's just read some of the headings to gain the whole storyline. You remember chapter 16 is Samson, That's and, and of course it goes a little earlier than that, but um, Samson's kind of the last fun you get to have anywhere in Judges. Then it's just 17 through 20, which is about some of the most depressing Bible you can read. Um, maybe I should have sped through this. <laughs> but chapter 17, you see Micah and the Levite, and you remember Micah's the guy who steals from his mom, and his mom puts a curse on whoever stole, and so he fesses up, etc., etc. I mean, it's just all sorted. Then they celebrate by putting a pagan shrine in their, in their house. He makes his son a, uh, a priest for him. Then a wandering Levite comes in, and the Levite becomes his priest. Um, we're flipping over to chapter 18, and you've got this other tie-in with the Danites. The Danites, of course, didn't take care of business as they were supposed to in, in the land that God had allotted for them via the inheritance. And so they're out you know, scanning around for an easy target so that they can come and steal their land. And so that's the people of Laish. They, they, they're going to take their land. But they bump into this priest in Micah's house. And, of course, he's a priest for hire, you know, priest to the highest bidder. And so the Danites haul off the, the carved image and all the stuff that belongs to Micah along with his priest. And they all, uh, they all go trucking on their merry way. Um, you know, the people of Dan end up going to Laish and slaughtering the people there. Uh, and that takes us more or less to the end of chapter 18. And then in 19, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning. So the story ties in, I mean, in, 
fairly fairly close proximity and as my, as I understand it and then um, also just this idea of once again a wandering priest and the trouble that occurs so long story short well his his concubine cheats on him he wants his concubine back um, there's a bit of a saga with the father-in-law then he's off and um, once he has a hard time getting out of there he wants to spend the night at Gibeah which is in Benjamin and of course there we have Sodom and Gomorrah round two uh, the people the people want to um, this is all like chapter 20 or chapter 19 verses 22 and following um, the men of Gibeah surround the house they they want the the priest um, the man who's hosting him says no so out goes uh, the man's, the host's virgin daughter and uh, the concubine. And so this, this terrible rape um, occurs then and the concubine ends up dying. Now we're getting to the end of chapter 19 and the new material in, in chapter 20. Um, this priest is anything but you know, a, a kind of righteous man or, or a victim. Um, that you would feel bad for, he just he says very abruptly to his to his concubine who's been you know raped and is lying there maybe unconscious maybe half dead whatever this verse twenty eight he just says get up let's be going, and there's no answer and so he throws her on the donkey, and then um, being a Levite he knows his way around butchering animals he ends up butchering the concubine dividing her limb by limb into twelve pieces sending them throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. And so that's the material we need in order to you know, understand the moral chaos at the end of Judges, which is going to culminate in these last two chapters where, I mean... As you, as you saw from chapter 17 all the way on, there's not really a, a good side and a bad side. What you find is that the good is in some ways every bit as corrupt as the bad, and trying to sort out and figure out who the hero is in the story, you end up being like, well, there is none. And that's partially what's so depressing and unsatisfying about it. But of course, that's history, and it's... it's um, it, then, then it's art depicting that historical period for us, um, you know, making us feel that way for spiritual reason. That this is what happens when people, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Um, ultimately, for us as Christians, this is this is at least a, a picture, a warning for what it is when everyone does what is right in his eyes, and we don't have the one King who is Jesus, and we don't abide by His word by by the doctrine that he sets forward, by the life that he sets forward. Um, we descend to the same moral chaos as we see in spades in the church here in America, where it's, once again, it's like every church is just simply doing what's right in its own eyes. and It's, it's chaos. So um, we can go into chapter 20. If you, if you have a question, those of you who can interact uh, on Zoom, if you, if you kind of wave your hand frantically, I'll, I'll be able to pick that up in my peripheral vision and... Um, if you got a question or comment, we can interact that way. Otherwise, let's just jump into the new material then in chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba,
Now that's the northernmost settlement to the southernmost settlement. So this is the whole of God's people. Um, that's like all unified. That's what's being signified here. So all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at, Miz at Mizpah. Um, this is a big deal in this one man language recurs throughout here. It's trying to show that this is the first unified action of the people of Israel, really since going all the way back to Joshua, when the people of Israel were unified against the Canaanites, trying to purge the land uh, so that they could inherit the promised land. Um, now, now, as we're going to see, the folks that they're going to purge as one man, unified for the first time since Joshua, are going to be their own countrymen. Uh, because, because of what occurred in Gibeah of Benjamin. So, verse 2, And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? So again, they're referring to the, to the rape of the priest's concubine. Um, verse 4, And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine. She is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, Give your advice and counsel here. Well, as is typically the case, he presents this in a rather one-sided fashion. Of course, he doesn't take any ownership for his part in it, for throwing her out, for you know, the grotesque brutality that he committed. I mean, even if it was after her death, but still kind of gross. It's just what you really see here is moral outrage and trying to, trying to get all of these 11 tribes into a frenzy of moral outrage when this guy himself isn't exactly the pillar of morality. So once again, you see that dynamic, and you'll see that dynamic throughout. That You'd be inclined to see the heroes here as the 11 tribes going to right this terrible wrong, going to take justice and, and just vengeance and retribution on uh, Benjamin. Um, that's kind of the setup, but then what you see is obviously this priest and then obviously the 11 are going to show themselves every bit as corrupt and um, perhaps deeply ironically even more corrupt. So we'll see that unfold. Um, any thoughts, any questions at this point? Anyone need to interject anything? I see Alice waving. Do you have your mic on, Alice? Can you now I can.
No, this seems to be a novel thing. There are indicators of that in the text. I, again, um, if you look back at chapter 19, verse 30, and all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Not meaning that it happened all the way back then, meaning, of course, since our inception, since our birth as a nation, as a people of God, nothing like this has ever happened. This is, this is the worst. Um, you know, both in terms of, and, and here, I mean, I, I, think, I think in reference it's to the whole thing. You know, not just the butchery of the dead concubine, but the entire episode. The fact that Sodom and Gomorrah is reenacted now in the midst of Israel. Um, and again, on speaking in terms of like corporate Israel, the way the 11 nations are seeing this, they're seeing the, the Levite as, um, they're not seeing anything wrong as such with him cutting up the concubine and sending her out. That's, that's his plea for help. That's his, that's his way of waking up people who are dead in their consciences and have let things deteriorate so, so far that this sort of behavior is accepted in one of the tribes of the people of God. And so, so the fact that he does this thing and it alarms everyone, I don't think there's any sense on the part of the 11 tribes of, hey, well, we're going we're gonna to write this wrong, but you sure went too far in, in butchering her. That's not it. It's like... Rather, the butchery is the whole episode, and the whole episode is a new low, a new evil, the likes of which has not been seen in the whole history of, of Israel up to this point. So, it, does that help clarify? Yeah, but he sent her out in the first place, the, the reenactment of Lot. Yeah. And so, that's what I'm saying. He didn't he send her out? Yeah. Yeah, he did. I mean, you can, you can go back and look at that. Or at least he certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't reject the suggestion. I'm looking at chapter, 20, uh, chapter 19, verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. Yeah, so he's the one that eventually thrusts her out quite self-interestedly. I mean, I, that's a terrible situation. It's not, I'm not saying in the least that he should have, like, traded places with her, but how about just both people stay in the house? You know, lock the door, see if an angel comes and protects you. Yeah, Connie's got a hand up. Pieces, one of the cleaned up were sent out to Egypt and 
riled up so that they would come to battle and support him, now the king, and go to battle against that. Right. Yes, that's interesting. To I didn't, I hadn't thought of that. To read this section in light of that section, this, this is certainly um, perverse relative to that section, isn't it? And yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so this is a this is a shocking, horrific thing. Um, he's not exactly being forthright with, uh, you know, his fault in the mat in the matter. He's making it look like. Uh, you know he's he's innocent and uh, and the uh, Benjaminites are are at fault. I, I mean they certainly are at fault, and so they certainly have done wickedly. But um, that takes us basically then through the content of of verse seven, where he says, "Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here." So then verse 8, and all of the, uh, excuse me, and all the people arose as one man, there's that language again, saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house, but now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot and we will take 10 men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So what it, what's at the basis of all this lot making is we're going to, I mean, in some respects, who's going to be on the front lines versus who's going to be on the supply lines, but we're going to do this as a whole and the lots allow and, and make sure that that's going to be fair and it's going to be a corporate act of the people. So one tribe doesn't simply get put on the front lines and the other tribe behind, right? It's a, this is a whole combined effort, all the tribes as one man. So that's what's behind that detail. Um, they decide, okay, because of the outrage that Benjamin has done, um, all of Israel is going to go against um, Benjamin in general and the city of Gibeah in particular. Okay, so then that takes us to verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. And of course, this would have been an easy enough uh, solution. I see a hand being, being waved over here if you want to get a word in edgewise. I'm not able to hear anything quite yet. I know Dave's working on it here. Just give me a second. Oh, I see Gandalf's iPad. Gandalf has joined us. That's fantastic. I've always wanted to do a Bible study with a wizard. Now, I'm not hearing anything, just FYI. Go ahead. All right, I'm seeing a thumb up. I'll go ahead. I, um, yeah, well, I'm just not able to hear anything, so I'm going to carry on. Um, all right, I think, I think we're at verse 12-ish something. 
Yeah, the tribes of Israel sent men saying, what evil have you done? Give us the men. We're going to purge this evil from Israel um, in the middle of verse 13. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Again, I mean, the whole thing, justice could have been done. There would have been a minimum of bloodshed. But Benjamin here showing themselves to be uh, just, I mean... Well, you get what you get when you act this way, but they're going to defend the, the rapists, and so they're going to go down with the rapists. Verse 14, Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the swords, uh, sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. So, you know, about 27,000. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So two interesting things here. Left-handed warriors were feared because most warriors as today, you know, are right-handed in, in sword combat or spear combat or whatever. You, you train against right-handed guys, that's what you know how to do. So left-handed were partic considered particularly treacherous warriors. And then, of course, the, um, everyone could sling a stone at a hare. And notice the spelling there. It's not talking about a rabbit. It's talking about a, you know, a hare um, and not miss. So obviously a, a mode of speech there. But um, suffice it to say, Benjamin's not going to roll over. They've got, a, they've got a sizable force. They've got trained men. They're going to put up a fight. So it's a terrible thing, a, a civil war type thing. We saw this once before in the day of Joshua with the idolatry that occurred. Um, but, but this takes it really to a new level, particularly given the grievous moral circumstances. So let's just continue on. Verse 17, And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000. So once again, Benjamin is very much outnumbered, um, but they're, they're going to go for it. So 400,000 men who drew the sword, all these were men of war. Um, that is soldiers. We're not just grabbing you know, boys and old men. Verse 18, The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, this is very interesting, and it's, it's worth paying attention to in this section, because three times they go to the Lord, and three times the Lord speaks. But very interesting, because at other places, as we'll see, they point out, you know, such and such about the Lord, but there's no other communication. And so what you tend to see here, as we've seen throughout these chapters, is this, this blurring of God does in fact speak and speak definitively in some instances, but not in others. And in others, there's, this, there's often this inference of, hey, well, what we want is what God must want. And so something to pay attention to in this section. Um, anyway, this is one of three where they go to the Lord. The Lord says, Judah shall go up first. We don't know the method or mode of communication. Luther's way of viewing verses like these are that a, that, that a priest or um, some other appointed person um, speaks on behalf of God to the people. But nonetheless, the narrator just leaves as is. The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. 
So this is fascinating, of course, because Benjamin are the close countrymen of Judah, and so um, you've, got, you've got Judah against Benjamin. And I think the study note points out that this is also foreshadowing um, a later civil war in which David, with his tribe of Judah, um, fights against Saul's tribe of Benjamin. That's referring to Second uh, Samuel 3.1, according to the study note. So you have a little foreshadowing there. Um, so we've got, uh, we've got Judah at the spear point here going up against Benjamin. Verse 19, Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So, what happens in battle number one is there, it's a devastating loss for Israel. Israel has 400,000. They lose 22,000. So, I mean, in terms of percentage, they're still okay. But it sounds like a very one-sided battle, almost a, almost a slaughter and landslide against the Israelites, which, of course, confuses the Israelites, rightfully so, because they inquired of the Lord. The Lord says, Judah shall go first. They assumed they had the Lord's blessing. But, you know, worth pointing out, what's their posture in this? Their, their posture in this is one of, uh, you know, self-righteousness. There's, there's very little attempt to, uh, to bring their brother to repentance. There's very little attempt to approach him in humility with their own repentance. I mean, obviously the nation's been in shambles for a long time. Um, there's just no humility and just uh, you know, almost this knee-jerk, okay, well, we're going to do military action here, period. Maybe that's better than apathy, but it still is in itself not quite what you'd hope in terms of a balanced approach. So the Lord uh, almost certainly teaching them some humility here um, in this first major defeat. Well, they reassemble, they weep before the Lord, etc. The Lord says, go up against them once more. Verse 24, so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All right, well, my math's not the greatest, but 22,000 plus 18,000 is... 40,000, and so now you've got a tenth, of the, a tenth of the army destroyed in what seems to be another very lopsided battle. Just continuing in the, in the midst of verse 25, all these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? Now, you can detect some differences in this encounter with the Lord than the previous ones. And the authors of the Lutheran Study Bible point out that there seems to be, a, on the basis of these differences, there seems to be a change in heart, a change in attitude um, of the people of the, of the 11 tribes. I mean, one thing to point out that seems to support that thesis is what they say at the end here, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? So there seems to be a, an increased sense of the gravity of what they're doing and that this is, um, you know, flesh of flesh and bone of bone and, and brothers killing each other here and this is a, this is a tragedy that it's come to this. Um, so they plead with the Lord and, and it seems like they're, they're in a more humbled state. Then the Lord says, go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hand. Okay, so that's the third inquiry with God and and now they're set, now they're assured that the Lord is going to um, get, grant them the victory, as we shall see. So. Okay, I'm reading some notes on the screen. We're having audio problems, so uh, I guess I can't take questions then. You want to give me some sign language, Dave? Or? One minute. All right, I can hang out. Uh, Zoom is having problems. You can check us out at faithcapital.com backslash live. All right, I'm not able to hear anything, so I'm just going to motor on and uh, let me know somehow, some way, if I need to stop. So, picking back up then at chapter 20, verse 29. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. All right, so what did they, had they done the previous two battles is they just formed battle lines. Now there's at least some strategy put into it. They're going to set an ambush around Gibeah. Verse 30, And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about thirty men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Meragiba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. 
and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. So again, the Lord holds true to his word and grants them the victory. I mean, it's amazing. Again, we're talking about an army of 400,000. They, they probably all weren't out there. I mean, they're back in the supply lines and everything else. So it's hard to know exactly like how many versus how many. But you still have 11 tribes against one. You still have, at the beginning, 400,000 against 26,000, 27,000. So how on earth could Israel not just win? Um, but they couldn't. And so then definitively the Lord has to give them the victory. And here the Lord does in verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, which is virtually annihilates them. I, I mean, they don't have fighting men left at the end of this. That's kind of the bottom line. Verse 36, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now, th this next section is a little interesting. It, it seems to sort of go back and give us more detail in the battle. At least that, that's how I take this. I think that that's what it's doing. Um, the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. I mean, classic move, we even saw this done in the conquest of Canaan with Joshua at the lead, is uh, you draw the people out of the city with what looks like your main force. Meanwhile, you've got forces in hiding. They rush in and destroy the city. Not only do they destroy the city, but now the army that's left the city, thinking they're going to rout um, those who came against it, is pinned between the ambush forces and the main forces. And so a very similar thing happens here. So, um, verse 37, Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. That is, stop fleeing away and turn the city in smoke means they control the city, and so that's, I mean, this is just getting down to the nitty-gritty of, of what happened. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. See, we had already heard that before. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked up, uh, looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Some of this language and imagery is uh, reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, and probably intentionally so. But the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. And we also saw that um, you know, they, they conquered the whole city with the edge of the sword. And all of these are, are hints of what's to come. So verse 41, Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far opposite Gibeah, on the east, as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 
18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them. And 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men. And so here you can just see the round number. Um, what was previously 25,100 is now 25,000. The Bible often speaks in round numbers. And, you know, lest all the atheists say, ha-ha, there's a contradiction. It's like, yeah, no, not really. It's just round numbers and imprecision, and we're fine with that. So this seems to just be sort of... Uh, restating with much more detail um, what actually occurred. So 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. And then verse 47, just to close out the section, but 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So this is, uh, this is devastating for Benjamin. This is effectively the end of Benjamin. All right, so that's chapter 20. Now the story continues on for the final chapter in Judges, chapter 21, and we're closing in on the end here. It looks like we're going to have time to finish. Um, I'm assuming, Dave, that we're not able to take questions. Is that correct? Maybe you can nod yes yeah. if that's correct. Or we would be able to. Okay. Okay. Some people. Some people have left. They go to the live stream. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, well, yeah. If there are questions or comments that we can take, I'm happy to entertain those. Otherwise, uh, maybe it looks like none. So I'll just uh, continue on then. All right. Off into chapter 21 we go. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So this was all the way back at the beginning of what they were going to do. We're not going to give our daughters um, in marriage to Benjamin. And so this is, a, this is a, I mean, maybe a, a rash pledge that they make, um, and it's certainly a fateful pledge that they make. Um, you know, it's just, it's not unlike... Who was it? Was it Jephthah who makes the pledge to, you know, he's going to, he's going to slaughter whatever comes uh, out of his tent upon return? Yeah, I think that's who it is. Yeah, it is. It's Jephthah. So, I mean, once again, you have like a very rash vow that they're going to come to regret. I think the moral of the story here, if there is one, is don't make rash vows. Uh, don't make absolute kind of pronouncements. Nothing good comes of it. So they said, no, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Well, this is a big problem. Verse 2, And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. I mean, these are the victors the, because, you know, this is the end of Benjamin. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. I mean, God doesn't grant them a di the dignity of a response here, but if he did, it would probably be like, for how many hundreds of years have I shown you a, a mirror of how wicked and depraved and ungodly have you've been, and you haven't repented? And now it's all culminated in this, 
And this is, you know, this is the mess that you've made. But again, there's, you can't help mingled in with, with what is probably a genuine and godly sense of mourning for their brother, mingled in is, is almost an accusation of God. You know, like, why did it come to this? Well, I don't know. You know, why did you, Israel, take one step after another down this path of wickedness that inevitably led here? So, again, this is, this is just yet another depressing aspect of judges is that even the, spiritual, the spirituality of the people is so deeply corrupt. Even where there's a glimmer of what's right, it's surrounded in what's wrong. So, um, verse 4 then, And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? Oh my goodness. So when they assembled back at Mizpah at the beginning of this thing, uh, apparently some didn't show up for the assembly, and they're just remembering this now. And this is just going to show you the wickedness of the 11 tribes. Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? So, no sooner have they devastated uh, Benjamin and basically rendered Benjamin extinct, Benjamin, they killed all the women and children. They killed almost all the males, certainly all the males of fighting age. There's young males left. That's the only hope for Benjamin to perpetuate. Um, but they've got no females, so they sw- the 11 swore not to give their daughters, so now what? <laughs> they don't want Benjamin to go extinct. I mean, there's just such a muddle and such a mess. Um, so what are they going to do? They're going to concoct a, a wicked and devious plan, you know, all, and it's all predicated upon obedience to the law. That's the other great deep irony and sickening aspect of, of this text is it's all predicated on this false obedience, this false faithfulness. Well, verse 8, and they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And, of course, what, you, what the study note points out is, um, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry, it's, it's just a little further in this verse. And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. So Jabesh-Gilead is a, is a city in Manasseh. So, look, we're all assembled here. Who didn't assemble here? Um, you know, no, I mean, just the irony. We're mourning the fact that we were too merciless to Benjamin. And so, by the way, who didn't join us in our mercilessness? Ah, Jabesh Gilead, let's go be merciless to them. I mean, this is just, it's the kind of thing, it's just infuriating and depressing. Well, verse 9, For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there, 
So the congregation, this is the 11, having just defeated Benjamin, sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. So again, I mean, just look at the punitive nature of this. Man, woman, and child, everyone's going to be destroyed, not, not far afield from what they did to Benjamin. So, I mean, the crime of not showing up and not executing Benjamin with them, something that they themselves regret, is now punished by you being executed? I mean, th this is where you see that those executing the justice are themselves murderous. And again, once again, you descend into this moral quagmire that is the book of Judges and the wickedness of the people. So verse 12, And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And who are these virgins with their parents murdered? Uh, who, who are these virgins going to go to? Benjamin. So, I mean, effectively, now you have the rape of 400 virgins, the kidnapping and rape of 400 virgins. That's, so this whole thing started, and it gets worse than this, but this whole thing started over the rape of a concubine, a single woman. And now the executors of justice are orchestrating the rape of 400 virgins. It's just, it's maddening. And it gets worse, of course. So, verse 13, Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. That is, the remnant of the tribe of Benjamin made peace with the eleven. And the eleven, they, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. Uh-oh. So our problem of, of kidnapping and then forcing into marriage these 400 virgins isn't sufficient. We need more. And look at the pretext for getting these women. I mean, not that we go back on our word. We can't ever go back on our word. So, so what are we going to do? We're going to go slaughter all these people just to get the women just to solve this problem. And we're going to act like them not showing up justifies our behavior. It's just, yeah. It's just the, the facade of righteousness is what makes this exacerbatingly sickening. Verse 15, And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. I mean, it's interesting. Well, verse 16, Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? I know, let's concoct another wicked plan. Okay, great. Verse 17, and they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, of course. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Again, the rash vow, the rash pledge here. Verse 19, so they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. All right, as the study note points out, this is probably the Feast of Booths. And um, from time to time, that was the, you know, Shiloh was the site of um, the tabernacle, or regularly was the site of the tabernacle. 
Anyway, so, gosh. Behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, again, for the yearly feast of the Lord, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go into the land of Benjamin. I mean, this is unbelievable. Now it's full circle. They're advocating the rape of all of these women who are, who are simply participating in a religious rite of Israel, who are completely innocent, their parents and families, their city and land, completely innocent, okay? And the 11 tribes now in their own absolute wicked hypocrisy are doing the very thing that uh, Gibeah did hundreds, hundreds and hundreds fold. I mean, the irony is enough to make your brain explode. So they concoct this plan. Benjamin, hey, you're on our side. Now go out and kidnap and rape these, uh, these daughters of Shiloh who are dancing at what is probably the Feast of Booths. Verse 22, And when their fathers of their brothers come to complain to us, <laughs> we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give to them, else you would now be guilty. So look at the false legalism. You can't give your daughters over because you made a pledge. Don't complain then when we concoct this way in which you keep your pledge, but your daughters disappear and are given. Verse 23, And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there, which is tragic and terrible, because you think of like the restart and refoundation of Benjamin as a tribe, and it's basically based on kidnap and rape, you know, kidnap and forced marriage. I'm calling it rape, it's forced marriage, but what's the difference? Verse 24, And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. You know, like, okay, that's it. Justice was done. Righteousness was accomplished. Good job, boys. I mean, it's just so sickening. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then here, like the summary of all summaries. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So again, we've heard that as an ongoing refrain throughout this book. And this book climaxes. Oh, I mean, it, in a magisterial and magnificent way of making you want to puke. And I think that that's precisely the point. I mean, this is wonderful, fantastic drama, narrative, and, and literature that is designed to uh, just make you shake your head. I mean, there's been times in this book where it's like all you can do is just keep reading, just get to the next verse, because it just makes you want to stop everything and lay down and die. It's just terrible. 
Um, and that's, that's what this is. And, and so how do we take this as Christians? I mean, I alluded to it earlier. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Well, when we come up on our study of First and Second Samuel, we're going to find out that things get so much better once there is a king in Israel, right? Um, no, not really. Maybe, maybe by slight degree. So the, the point is then that there is no king in Israel. The answer isn't going to be a king like Saul or David or Solomon or any of the kings of the divided kingdom. Ultimately, we must have a king who has a righteousness not our own. We must have Jesus Christ as our king, no longer doing what is right in our own eyes, repenting, returning to him, and following him in faithfulness. So to culminate and put this in a, in a positive sense, particularly for us as Christians, the king that, that judges points to is the Messiah, is Jesus, crowned in thorns, bearing the sins of the world in his flesh, taking away our sins by making atonement for them once and for all, and setting things right in a way that we human beings simply cannot. We're, we are by nature far too corrupt. So, um, okay, I see a hand. Yes, thank you for that. That's exactly right. Judge, uh, Ruth is a breath of fresh air. And, and honestly, first and, first and second Samuel are kind of a breath of fresh air, at least relative to judges. I mean, the, the whole point of judges is basically to say, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes and claims to have God's backing, in one way, shape, or form, this is what it devolves into. This is what it looks like. And and again, I made the off-the-hand comment that you can see aspects of this in, in the Christian church in the West today, particularly in America, and it's most certainly true where, where many of God's people, and this is a bad analogy, but many of the tribes of God's people are, have completely bought into the secular worldview, are practicing the idolatry that the pagans around us practice, and are uh, encouraging others to do the same, persecuting those uh, tribes uh, of us who say, no, we, we want to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so you have the same moral decay going on even in our own time. Yeah. All right, well, um, we finished Judges. So uh, again, why don't, you, why don't you send me emails, pastorodi at faithcapital.com. If you feel strongly one way or another that you'd like to go over to Ruth, that's sort of number one. Uh, or First and Second Samuel, that's number two. And I'll just do it the old democratic way. Whichever gets enough votes um, is, is fine with me. So uh, with that in mind, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you here next week via live stream. The Lord be with you.